0: Hello, and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Cupboard podcast. Coming up on today's show, we watch how Nespresso is engaging both suppliers and consumers in order to improve the sustainability and recyclability of its value chain.
1: Pulling and leveraging on your network is really, really important. And in my experience, every conversation I have with an external person, I usually learn something more because I think this world is a journey. I think we're all learning.
0: We delve into the depths of Thai Union's fish-based supply chain to see how the company is igniting a sea change in sustainable sourcing practices.
2: It's not so much a didactic message of you must follow this, it's about asking how can our requirements be met, how can we as Thai Union support the suppliers in meeting that, and understanding all the different governance, community and regulatory issues that are
0: around And we chat best practice CSR reporting with packaging giant Mondi.
3: We always are looking to keep the audience in mind and how can we best reach those audiences and and tell the right stories um, that we have.
0: So yes, hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Covered podcast. We're well into week seven on the UK lockdown, and from the many sustainability professionals that I've spoken to, working life is starting to get a bit more settled in, with many businesses having adapted to remote working. The ED team is no different, and with Sarah and James currently furloughed, it's up to me, ED's content editor Matt Mace, to deliver our next batch of podcasts on my own. What better topic to talk about when you're on your own than engagement? See, the 4th of May may well have been Star Wars Day, but it also kick-started Edie's Engage 2020, a week of online content focused on sustainability reporting and communications. We've already launched a new comms and reporting handbook, which focuses on engagement during lockdown, and have published a number of interviews uh, and exclusive Susty talk to the likes of Ball Corporation, Bournemouth Uni, The World, GBC, uh, and AB InBev. Uh, they're all up on the website now. Of course, we also had our star-studded online event as well, free back-to-back virtual panel sessions focused on reporting and engagement, which can be watched on demand. So once you finish this episode, do head over to ed.net to check those out. This podcast also falls into our Engage Week, and I'll be delivering free exclusive interviews uh, with sustainability professionals. The first two focus on, on the tangled webs that are supply chains. The terrible and immediate economic shocks caused by the COVID-19 outbreak has questioned globalisation as we know it. And When it comes to supply chains, many businesses may well explore how to localise them uh, in order to give them more control and transparency and be able to identify areas of risk going forward to halt any potential stopping uh, and stoppages of production in the future. Uh, Many of those risks, of course, will be climate related. And then for the second half of this episode, I'll then be focusing on sustainability reporting with a one-to-one interview with a company that has been globally recognised for its approach to reporting. But on with the show, and I should say that this first interview was recorded face-to-face, but rest assured uh, it was recorded back in February when... um, offices travel and events were very much still up and running we were originally planning on running a podcast on food and drink systems and this interview is meant to be part of that uh, however the other interviews we had lined up had to be cancelled just as the coronavirus started sweeping through the uk fortunately a lot of the messages in this conversation with nespresso are applicable to the theme of engagement especially in regards to supply chain resiliency and post-consumer recyclability So I'm now going to hand over to my non isolated self from February for our first interview. I've been invited by Nespresso to get uh, the inside exclusive on the company's approach to supply chain engagement um, and to premiere a new short film about uh, coffee discovery in Kenya, which I'm very much looking forward to. Hopefully, I'll be sampling some of that coffee very shortly. Uh, but before that, it's my pleasure to welcome Nespresso Sustainability Lead, Judy Gallagher, to the podcast. Uh, Judy, how are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you.
0: We were we were discussing uh, as we were trying to find a room to do this recording that we, um, we didn't quite bump into each other at the sustainability leaders forum but we were looking out for one another to say hello how did you find the forum
1: i loved it um i did see you but you looked very busy and, and i too was busy uh with um, getting to all the different uh, keynote speeches panel events workshops and meeting other people and i think it's a great place uh to get some inspiration and recharge your batteries to go back and make change back in the
0: workplace yeah, I definitely consider myself a coffee connoisseur after day two of the forum, the amount I was drinking just to keep uh, keep the energy levels going. But no, I, I agree. It felt really energising to be a part of. And I think one of the key things I took away from the forum was this this idea of a just transition to, to net zero or, or a low carbon economy that kind of takes supply chains and farmers and those working in developing countries with us and that, you know, there isn't really... Uh, a need to leave anyone behind on this um and i think that's why it's a good time to be speaking to nespresso Uh, so i've brushed up on your triple a sustainability quality program um which obviously covers that but it's probably best if you provide an overview as to what that entails
1: um well i i think probably to put it it in perspective, understanding Nespresso. I mean, uh, Nespresso is a coffee company, and we, our proposition to our consumers is all about great tasting, quality coffee. Um, quite early on in the success, I mean, the company was set up in 86, So, quite early on in its success, it, we recognise that actually, if we're going to, the growing demand, we need to ensure that we have good quality supply long term. And as part of that, we uh, worked with the Rainforest Alliance back in 2003. and put into place our AAA Sustainable Quality Programme, which is a programme that is for uh, working directly with farmers, uh, whereby we are looking to improve the quality, uh, the sustainability and the productivity of uh, the smallholder farm. in essence, uh, we have a number of sustainable practices that are put in place, and we help farmers, uh, whether that's, well, uh, really more empower them to be able to take control of their farms uh, by providing training, uh, best practice training, um, su- su- sustainable method methodologies, and also looking at the productivity and the economics of the farm so they can uh, create v- greater value from it.
0: And 2003 is... It is a an impressively long time to have that kind of partnership set up, but I've spoken to companies that are younger than than that, yeah. um, and I imagine um, having such a, a kind of long standing uh, relationship with the Rainforest Alliance and and that program in place has has um, reaped some impressive learnings for you as to how to embed sustainability at such a ground level. What would you say were the uh, the key achievements of that so far?
1: Well, I think uh, our coffee sourcing is obviously uh, through the AAA Sustainable uh, Quality Programme is a key component of our overall sustainability strategy, but it's not just about the coffee sourcing. We also have to consider the packaging Mm. that it's in and the aluminium capsules um, and why we choose aluminium. And also we're conscious of uh, our carbon footprint as well. So we do have kind of, within what we call uh, the positive cup, which is I guess our sustainability strategy which outlines all our plans mm. and activities uh, towards our three big goals and our big goals are, one is around coffee sourcing, 100% sustainable source coffee through our AAA farms, the second one is around 100% sustainably managed aluminium and the third one is around um, carbon neutrality across um, our operations. Uh, with the first one around coffee sourcing and why we're here today and you'll see later uh, when we see the video from Kenya. Okay, so on what we've achieved through um, coffee sourcing, so our first goal is we're now 94% of our coffees are uh, sourced through AAA farms. Uh, so we're well on our journey to achieving the 100% which we uh, hope to achieve by the end of this year. Mm-hmm. Um, With regard to uh, aluminium, that is one of our goals within that pillar is really around having uh, capacity to recycle. Um, Because of the way the pods are, you can't easily recycle those through the curbside collection. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're A, too small to be collected, and B, they do have coffee. And we want to obviously valorise both the material that it's packaged in and the coffee itself. So in most of our countries, um, we set up uh, recycling schemes in the UK. If we were, we've got the capacity, one hundred percent capacity to recycle all of the coffee pods that we sell in the UK, um, and uh, we do this by working with a partner in Coltandum, based in Cheshire, uh, which manage the both the aluminium, uh, repurpose both the aluminium and the coffee. Um, And we are recycling rate in the UK and Ireland is at 33%. So a third of what we sell goes through that channel. Uh, So we've got visibility of that that's being recycled. Uh, Whilst that's not hundred uh, percent it's uh, on its way uh, and the thing is it's massively improved and certainly in the last year we've uh, that's about a nine percentage point increase against the time the similar time last year so it has moved forward um, and we're pleased about that and we just want more people to participate in the scheme
0: yeah we've seen a lot on ED of of those similar types of schemes whereby a business essentially provides a service in the collection of the packaging. Once it's been used with, it's really taken off. Obviously, Loop is probably the biggest example through uh, TerraCycle. They're partnering with a lot of companies, so it's good to see that um, um, a company that kind of was a bit ahead of the curb in in that sense in, in rolling this out. Um, and I think the fact that you've recorded such impressive year-on-year growth in terms of increased recycling rates is 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 very impressive. What's the you, and you've mentioned you've got sight of. Of that now, that stream. What's what's been kind of the main barriers that's perhaps stopping the the percentage rising from the thirties into like the forties or the fifties?
1: I guess um, a lot of it is um, about general awareness. Uh, so you know, our customer needs need to be aware first and foremost. And we've done quite a lot of work to make them more aware of the scheme, um, and then it's about making it as easy as possible. So. Um, the way they recycle here in the UK, you can either drop them off at one of 57 of our boutiques across UK and Ireland, um, or we also partner with Collect Plus. Um, so they have 7,000 outlets across the UK, typically in news agents, open late of an evening, seven days a week, where you can drop off your recycling, where you might pick up a delivery, and you can pick up the delivery of mm. coffee there, but you might be picking up delivery for something else, but you can also drop off your recycling there. And if that's not convenient, what we also do offer our um, uh, consumers is um, an opportunity if they're buying their coffee online to actually organise for a collection at home. So we'll pick up the recycling from the home as we deliver their, their new uh, coffee. Uh, so the three ways to, to recycle. So making that as easy as possible. Now, for many, that's still not easy enough. Uh, and we do recognize that and therefore for for us a goal would be to unlock curbside that would be we've done a trial there we did a trial um, with Kensington mm. uh, and Chelsea and uh, with Suez their waste partner and um, sponsored with Alupro, the trade body for aluminium um, and uh, we worked with them in order to do the trial which we put in for a substantial end time um, we had about nine, uh, 12, 12 months in total almost 12 months and what we saw there was that um, well simply first of all what you did was you did the same thing you put your pods in the bag and then you put your recycling bag alongside your other recycling whenever it was your recycling was due to be picked up and what we found is that Uh, Those that um, had um, recycled with us before, a lot of them had used the boutique locally, uh, found that it was actually really easy to do and meant they almost did it more and more frequently. And very encouragingly, those who had never used our recycling had started to recycle because it was actually just easy to do. Um, So I definitely think participation uh, through making it easier would be uh, definitely drive those
0: rates higher it's probably a good time uh, to be looking into the kind of consumer engagement because it seems at at a glance or at very least kind of surface level consumers seem so much more aware of the climate issues we've seen with the strikes throughout all of last year um, how it's kind of dominating like mainstream media headlines this feels like a good time that those solutions that you've had in place for a while now you can really kind of amplify the message I agree
1: I mean I undoubtedly think all of the media coverage the fact that it's on BBC news uh, regularly Mm. as a regular slot all of that helps um, drive awareness of the fact that you know people I think people have got that they have a role in it as well I mean we as company and business have a big role uh, in it and have a big role to play in solving a lot of the issues that we have but individuals have too and I think more and more people are feeling that bit more guilty about not recycling. So mm. we're seeing, and, and, and what's good about it is also people recycle, but actually I think there's an element where people are much more conscious to make sure they recycle correctly, because contamination is an issue yeah. in itself.
0: And on the consumer front, but less so on the recycling, you mentioned the 94% um, certified through either the, the A sustainability programme, certified by mm-hmm. the rainforest Alliance, or through Trade.
1: Um, So the programme is a bespoke programme to Mm. espresso, which we've uh, jointly developed with the Rainforest Alliance. And so 94% of them are the our coffees carry the AAA mark. Um, But over and above that, what we want to do is encourage our farmers to be dual certified Mm. uh, because um, we will, uh, they're not obliged to sell all of their coffee to us. clearly they do but but we won't necessarily take all of it either because of quite high quality standards but what helps is that whilst people um may not recognize the AAA a for nespresso they do recognize the rainforest trademark so so off and or fair trade so 56 percent of those coffees mm. that are 94 percent AAA a also have uh, either rainforest or triple, uh, uh, rainforest or f- uh, fair trade uh, certification, which allows them, particularly the rainforest, to continue to get a premium on the market when whenever they need to sell to someone else, another roaster.
0: Uh, okay, because I was I was actually going to ask if that perhaps you know there's uh, has too like this an information overload for some right. sometimes with so many labels, and I was going to ask whether you've had any kind of uh, questions raised because of the the AAA um logo and fair trade but it sounds like because they mostly overlap that's probably not the case
1: um it's not something that's ever been raised i um no we've not really had an issue with that i think i think it's um i think i i have not seen anything but my guess is that you know people people who buy an espresso get some of them get that it's triple a and if they recognize the triple a but um the rainforest is i suppose for them a more recognized mark that is added value to it rather than detracts from it Uh, but no one's really commented on that it's more for the farmers to enable them to be able to sell at a premium price elsewhere.
0: It seems um, we've been focusing on supply chains whether that's aluminium supply chain or the coffee supply chain so far and I'm seeing uh, I kind of picked up at the forum as well some businesses that are less ahead on their sustainability journey realising the need to look on their own operations look across the value mm-hmm. chain um, and engage not just with suppliers um, like you've done but also with the end of life like you like mm-hmm. you've done with the curbside and swears um, it, it seems that we're hitting a point where businesses know that real kind of true leadership involves multi-stakeholder collaboration on that front and I, I'd want to ask Nespresso as a company that has been doing this for a long time what your kind of key advice would be for a sustainability professional that's just trying to get to grips with kind of future-proofing the value chain of the business they operate in, what what advice would you give them?
1: Well, I think, um, firstly, I suppose what's been easier for our business is is the model because we're a direct business. So by that, I mean we work directly with farmers Mm. and we work directly, deliver directly to consumers. So we have true visibility of our value chain. Now, I do recognise that not every company has that mm. that makes it easier for us to manage and ensure that uh, sustainable practices are put in place uh, from the cherry right through to you know the end of life um, but that said what i would say um, if you don't have that business model is i think the most important thing is um, partnerships you know we set up an, an espresso sustainability advisory board in I think 17 it was Um, and that is because we too are conscious that we need to learn we haven't got all the answers and that is a mix of in fact the CEO of Fairtrade and Rainforest Alliance would sit on that and will do sit on it rather um, and other uh, external experts um, who um, will challenge us on our thinking and drive us that bit harder as well which I think is good um, uh, but also can provide some uh, inroads to other partners we may should be considering uh, dealing with, and we work with I would say now it must be getting on to forty different partners in order to whether that's through coffee sourcing or through aluminium sourcing, uh, in order to um, push the you know a more circular uh, approach to our business. So uh, yeah, partner partnering and partnering with the right people I think is critical. Um, so you know uh, pulling and leveraging on your network is really really important and in my experience every conversation I have with an external person I usually learn something more because I think this world is a journey I think we're all learning I don't think it is about perfection I don't think it's a silver bullet I think uh, you can make decisions in one area and then have all these unintended consequences Mm. Um, and you and and so my another lesson I would say don't don't wait to get everything perfect. Just try it and try it and then look to scale it up.
0: Now, I uh, 100% agree that chimes in with many conversations I've had with many sustainability professionals. But um, you mentioned partnering. I know I had a look at some of the name badges upstairs. And there seems like a lot of people that you want to be talking to today around any potential partnerships. So I won't keep you uh, for much longer. So thank you very much to Julie and Nespresso, and hopefully we'll get to a stage soon when bespoke events like that are able to be put on again, although that's probably still some time off. The next interview, though, is still focused on supply chains, and this one took place during the first month of lockdown. When looking for best practice on supply chains, one of the most notoriously complex is that of the fishing industry, with vessels ranging from the sizes of small cities to small individual trawlers. Placing sustainability and human rights at the heart of the practice is no easy feat. Fortunately, our next guest is on hand to showcase how their organization has worked tirelessly to transform the value chain. So it's my pleasure to welcome Thai Union's Global Director of Corporate Affairs and Sustainability, Darian McBain. Dialing all the way in from Australia, I believe. Darian, how are you?
2: Hi, Matt. I'm well, thanks. How are you going?
0: Yes, yes, very well. Um, it's It's been an, an adjustment period, I think it's fair to say, for for most of um, our staff and indeed most of our audience. We were just talking before the call. You've kind of been getting used to the the homework uh, at at the beginning of January. So you're kind of into the swing of things right now?
2: I did. So I had my adjustment period in January when I moved back from Thailand after five years back home to Sydney. So I had a couple of weeks of thinking, this feels like I'm on permanent sick leave. It's really strange not being in an office But now by the time everyone else is working from home, I'm like, right, I'm into this routine. I know how to do it. So it's working out well. And it's nice to see the different ways we can all connect. You know, I have a very global team and deal with stakeholders globally. And so it has been heartening how we've all been able to connect, whether it's through calls or webinars or podcasts. I... I really do look forward to seeing what the environmental impact will be from all of us working from home and yet still managing to be productive.
0: That's a very good point. And yeah, it feels a bit strange to be doing a, a podcast all about engagement and communications and having to do it all basically via uh, Skype because of uh, the social distancing aspect. But it's good to know that you're you're still able to engage with not just your team, but, but those um, outside your four walls that you work with. Um, As well, and I think it's a good place to start. And so perhaps for those that are listening that are are perhaps they've probably heard of Thai Union, but um, they're not quite sure of of the work in regards to sustainability and supply chain that that you have done to date. So should we start with a bit of an overview um, as to as to as to your organization and your work with supply chains and engagement on that front?
2: Sure. So Thai Union is one of the largest seafood processors in the world. So we're known particularly for canned tuna. So we're the largest canned tuna manufacturer. Approximately one in every five cans of tuna manufactured is manufactured by Thai Union. We're one of the largest importers of shrimp into the United States. Plus, we deal with all other seafood species, salmon, sardines, mackerel, etc. We're headquartered in Bangkok and listed on the stock exchange of Thailand, but very much a global company. So our supply chains really do stretch around the world. Our markets, uh, the largest market is in the United States. Our second largest market is Europe. So it's very much a global operation. And I think sometimes the name confuses people. They think it's only operating in Thailand and only using Thai seafood, but actually Less than 2% of the seafood that we process comes from Thailand. Um, we have manufacturing sites in 16 locations around the world.
0: And that global footprint obviously adds to the complexity of, of the management and the engagement with the supply chain, I, I would have thought. And um, having having worked with um, with Thai Union um, previously, and, and I've spoken to you a few times before, I know that obviously um, human rights and, and obviously sustainable kind of fishing is is, is the kind of two key pillars I mean there's obviously there's obviously a lot more nuance to it than that but those are the two kind of real highlight areas is that fair to say?
2: They're certainly the two that we focus on very strongly so we operate across wild capture fisheries aquaculture and in feed and we have our sustainability strategy which is called sea change and that has four pillars to it So safe and legal labor, which is very much around human rights for our own operations and our supply chains. Responsible sourcing, which is all about traceability and knowing the environmental and social impact of the products that we're sourcing. Responsible operations, which is about our factories, health and safety and the environmental performance of those factories. So I should say we're a processor. We don't own vessels, we don't own farms, we process seafood. And then the final pillar is people and communities. So how do we interact with the people that we work with, but also the communities in which we operate? And a lot of the, I guess, groundbreaking work that we've done in recent years has been in those first two pillars. So around human rights and around seafood sourcing, supply chains and traceability.
0: Okay, great stuff. And I mean, I've spoken to a lot of sustainability professionals, that work for kind of big they're large organizations, they have great scope of influence. Um, and <clears throat> I think I think engagement um, has always been a challenge, whether that's just with, with the kind of staff within their own operations. So to actually be able to try and take the sustainability agenda, the communications and put that down to supply chains where those on the ground workers, those day to day workers, you know, they might, they might be very unaware of, of the broader kind of issues it must be quite tough. Have you have how have you found your approach to engagement across the supply chain so far?
2: So I guess I come from quite a supply chain focused background. So many years ago I worked for the NHS in the UK for the purchasing and supply agency. So at that time we used to talk about the NHS being one of the largest purchasers in the world, second only to the Chinese army or the US Postal Service. I'm not sure if that holds true, but working in an organization that was entirely focused on purchasing, whether that was contracting or investigating the products that you're buying and setting up your purchasing procedures really helped me focus on what good supply chain practices are. And so when I joined Thai Union, I did take a very risk, approach, risk management approach, but from that supply chain perspective. And seafood supply chains, I always think, are not chains, it's a misnomer. They are webs, they're very, they're quite complex, they're quite just dis- dispersed, and you need to understand, I guess, how food is being produced, but also how it's being transported, and how it will be consumed at the other end. So you have different temperature regimes, you have different forms of processing, and we go from everything from, say, a large tuna seine vessel, which is almost like a large floating city. It has a lot of staff. It has observers on board. You can see some really good practices, and they're out fishing in international waters, to perhaps a very local fishery, like a crab fishery, where you might have people literally casting nets and bringing them in and being having processing take place in a local community. And so it's getting a balance between how do you manage with your high-level corporate aspirations, but making it meaningful to people on the ground who are really doing the hard work at the far end of the supply chain. Yes,
0: yeah, so it sounds like, um, as with it's often the case with supply chains, there's no, there's no silver bullet, no one-size-fits-all solution to, to how to kind of resonate um, with them. Are there any kind of specific examples um, in terms of comms with the supplier or, or, or training that, that have, have really worked for, for Thai union so far? So in
2: 2015, we reissued our code of conduct. So it was called our business ethics and labor code of conduct. And that really set the tone for how we engage with our suppliers. And, of course, when I say that now, everybody's like, well, everybody has that. And that is true, but it was interesting to be with an organisation that was really starting from an early point. When we first gathered our suppliers in Thailand, and this can be anything, not just seafood, it could have been rice, it could have been oils, it could be a paper supplier, but when we first started gathering them and talking about the behaviours that we expected of our suppliers, it really did open up a dialogue with suppliers that hadn't been there before. And then we replicated that in different countries and different supply chains. And to me, the important part is having that dialogue. It's not so much a didactic message of you must follow this. It's about asking how can our requirements be met? How can we as Thai union support the suppliers in meeting that and understanding all the different Governance, community, and regulatory issues that are around how our suppliers are providing us with their seafood. And then since then, you know, it's evolved. We've now got, we came up with a shorter version and a pictorial version that we found useful in some communities. We had our document translated into around 20 different languages. And then we developed our Vessel Code of Conduct and Vessel Improvement Program, which was specifically for vessels going to sea because some of the conditions at sea are different to those on land. And so it's definitely been a journey, but I think at the core, it is good communication that goes both directions, both communicating what we're expecting, but also listening to what the suppliers are telling us.
0: And the old adage is you can't um, you can't manage what you can't measure. And I know I know TIE Union and WWF have quite a kind of long-standing partnership in terms of the uh, transparency of of your supply chain. Has, has that um, partnership been uh, invaluable in terms of helping uh, not just identify areas of improvement, but then um, helping with the engagement front as well?
2: It definitely has been. So that partnership started with WWF UK and John West, who are our brand in the UK and, you know, really starting to look into understanding the supply chain. And it expanded to multiple countries across Europe and really it drove the direction for transparency for all of Thai Union. So when we made our tuna commitment, uh, which was about moving all of our supply of tuna to fishery improvement projects or MSC-certified fisheries, then that was really on the basis of the work that we had done with WWF. So, in that sense, that partnership was really transformational. And last year, we published our first transparency report, which was done in partnership with WWF.
0: And I've realised um, we're, we're already about just over 10 minutes into this conversation already, so I won't give you too much longer. But I, I think a question that I want to ask everyone that's appearing on this podcast Um and everyone that's kind of at various stages of the of the social distancing is that um, it can seem like communications can be a bit hard when you're kind of cooped up in a in your home with just either yourself or just your your family Um, but the I think the message we're seeing from the same professionals is is that this is a long-term journey and it doesn't stop just because of how how we're working has changed so how do you think Um, sustainability professionals can can make the best use of this time to make sure that they are still communicating and engaging on the sustainability front?
2: So I've actually been really impressed with how the sustainability community has responded. So within my own team, which is a global team, and we've always had to manage different time zones and working remotely, we've continued with video calls and telephone calls, uh, emails and different discussions, different chat groups but it's the response from everybody else so still doing consultations for example with NGOs still participating in working groups I know I've joined a lot more webinars because I have that opportunity to take the time to listen and podcasts and I guess I've been both a giver and a receiver on those I both listen plus I participate And so I do think it's a great opportunity to continue to be engaged. And the message I'm certainly giving my organisation is perhaps one of positivity. We will get through this. I am confident that we will come out the other side. We can't leave sustainability just lying on the sidelines. We need to continue with all of our good work. Of course, COVID-19 is taking an absolute priority. I mean, particularly with some of our supply chains like Canned tuna, it is in high demand. It is one of the best forms of ready to eat protein that's available and it's shelf stable. So we must continue to work with our supply chains, ensure that they can continue to deliver, ensure that our workers are safe and continue to be safe working in our factories, looking at the rights of migrant workers and ensuring they continue to be protected because indeed they're quite vulnerable in these times as different countries close their borders but at the same time we're still working on our sustainability report still looking at how we can drive further change we're using this time as a good sort of quiet time to look into more detail at our scope one two three carbon emissions and how we can really refine our program looking to announcing sea change 2025 towards
3: the end of this year.
0: Okay, it sounds like it's uh, all systems all systems go for you. And um, I won't keep you much longer, then. Cause it sounds like you've got a lot to be um, uh, cracking on with in terms of work. I don't know what time it is uh, for you outside in Australia. It's, it's, it's like early morning um, here in the UK. So I've got a full day of work, but I'm I'm, I'm not sure if you, if you get to wind down for the rest of the day or not. But it's been um, it's been a pleasure to speak to you again today, Darren.
2: It's been great to speak to you, too. And, you know, there's no winding down. I think that's what we see now. We're in a global world. We're we're all in this together. So the fight for sustainability continues 24 hours a day, I think.
0: So thank you very much, uh, Darian, for talking to me uh, from halfway across the world there. Uh, If the coronavirus has done anything, it has made all of us much more connected online. Although I think we're all clamoring for some outdoor face to face conversations right about now. So the engagement theme out of the way, the second half of this episode will be focusing on CSR reporting. So you'll be hearing again from me very shortly. So hello and welcome back to the Sustainable Business Cover podcast. So it would be remiss of me to run a podcast on stakeholder engagement without touching on the valuable role of the sustainability report in this endeavour. <clears throat> so for the final interview of this podcast, we're going to be speaking to an organisation that has excelled when it comes to CSR reporting. Packaging giant Mondi's Sustainable Development Report ranks in the top 10 globally, according to the World Business Council of Sustainable Development's Reporting Matters initiative, uh, which examines more um, than 160 Uh, leading global companies on their reporting performance, and that's across uh, more than 30 countries. Susan Bruner is the Senior Sustainability Positioning Manager at Mondi and leads the reporting work. Uh, Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing very fine, thanks. How are you, Mark? Yes, yeah. um, The the weather's a bit worse for wear. It's kind of, it was really sunny, now it's really rainy, but I suppose you kind of want rain when you're in a lockdown and you can't really go out anyway. Uh, (laughs) But uh, how, how... how has the lockdown? How has the lockdown been um, for for yourself, Susan, in terms of you and your your team's ability to work?
3: Um, I have to be honest. Uh, we were in a pretty good setup when it when it was announced. It came surprisingly to us, as to everyone else. Um, but the pace hasn't slowed for us, um, and our team was set up already to work quite um, virtually. So half of our team or part of our team sits in the UK. And most of our team sits in Vienna uh, in our office there. So we have the technology infrastructure already in place. Um, it almost seems to have evened out things a bit because now we're all on the screen with small small photos when we're having our team calls as opposed to having a large portion of us together in Vienna and, and one or two other people uh, on the screen. Okay. So, yeah, we miss. I miss seeing, I miss seeing the team. Um, and the days feel quite similar. It feels a little bit um, like each day is the same get a little bit of tired of fatigue of the webex and the calls but uh, it's nice we have there's no commute to the to work anymore the coffee the machine is much closer to my desk and obviously i, I can spend more
0: time to see my children more i do in a, in a normal setup um, well, good to know there are some some positives um in in the working aspect of it at, at least um and i so i've got monday's latest report um open in front of me uh, which is obviously march um late march published i've opened up the pdf format because yeah, I'm a traditionist like that and I just I can't navigate websites to, to save my life. Uh, it's the same with maps. I'm just terrible with any sort of navigation. So um, I've got the PDF open in front of me um, and I, I've had a kind of combed through. It all looks extremely impressive um, and I imagine it was a, a quite a big undertaking. Um, and having spoken to a lot of CSR professionals before, I know that reporting is kind of a year-round endeavor. So so how long have you been working on this iteration of the report for? I'd uh,
3: say so we've been working on it, um, we, we, we kick off our reporting process in early September, beginning of September, and it pretty much takes us straight through until we publish the reports at the end of March. Um, uh, so it is, it is as, as the saying goes in-house, after the report is before the report, so to say. Um, but we have a quite a, a swim team, a streamlined team that's, that's focused on, on doing the reporting. So it's it's more or less two people from the Group SD side, myself and the the Head of Group Sustainable Development, and um, working together with two people on the corporate communication side. But part of what takes us so long on the report um, is that we do an extensive amount of stakeholder engagement, both internally and externally. So internally, obviously, with all of our in-house sustainable development experts for the different areas and forestry or product stewardship or manufacturing, um, but also across the whole business in terms of speaking with HR, tax, safety, risk, wood supply, and so on, um, and then also with our key external stakeholders with the different NGOs, partners that we have, and so on, to bring their views into the report. So it really reflects our whole philosophy and, and what we say that sustainability is embedded in everything we do. Uh, a lot of companies say that, um, but I really can say that for one day this
0: is our reality, and that's what we try to reflect in our report. Yeah, that's that's a massive undertaking for, for a relatively small amount of people. It's um seriously impressive. And and in, on the reporting aspect, then um, you know, we're easy. We always come through CSR reports and same reports when they come out because it's it's kind of a great update against long-term goals. And there's there's always stories there. So what what are the kind of um, uh, standout um efforts that have been mentioned in the report in this in this version?
3: Um. In terms of the standout efforts, I think. Well, I, I'd like to sort of break that into into two aspects. On the one hand, the performance highlights out of the report, uh, and then maybe just a few insights from from the reporting side of things as well, uh, if that's if that's okay for you. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. Um, so, if I if I start on the on the reporting side of it. Um, it's really uh, for us. Without with our report, we it, it's talking about our growing responsibly model. Um, this is our framework that we've established to to measure, improve, and communicate our performance and sustainability. Uh, as I said before, it really it lies at the heart of our of our whole strategy, and it's carried top down and also bottom up throughout the organization. Uh, we have within this growing responsibly model uh, established ten action areas, as we call them, to reflect the different aspects of sustainability that are most relevant to both, one, the internally, but also to our external stakeholders. Um, obviously, have reviewed this again and again through our materiality process. Um, but part of this responsibility, our growing responsibly model, is that we have 16 public commitments that take us to 2020, so our five-year commitment period is ending in 2020, um, and we have an updated science-based target running to 2050. Um, so, from, from reporting, this, this model really helps, helps us to address all the different areas, um, and we obviously also report to uh, GRI, uh, core option, but we also report against the UN SDG framework, and I just wanted to touch on that as well. Um, we do think it is a key responsibility of business to help deliver on the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Um, and every year we report on the SDGs that have the strongest links to our growing responsibly activities. Um, but this year, in our 2019 report, we, we went a step further and identified the areas where we have the greatest impact and opportunity to make a real and lasting difference. So we had last year already identified the six, uh, five SDGs that were most relevant to our business, and this year we added another SDG, SDG 6, on water, um, and go into a bit of a deeper dive on those, and we also include an SDG index in our report, um, mapping all of our um, activities from going responsibly against the the SDGs and, and the targets of those SDGs that are, where it's relevant. Um, if I then look at from our report, what what are the performance highlights? Um, I, I think some of our performance highlights clearly is about climate change. That is the number one issue that we have um, here. We I already touched on it before. We have new science based targets that we announced in our report that were also formally approved this past year. So uh, those targets covered 95% of our scope one and two emissions. We reduced our overall CO2, specific CO2 emissions, by 15.5% since 2014. This is what we're reporting on um, since uh, 2004, which is how far our baseline goes back. We've reduced our CO2 emissions by 39%. Um, And we have also begun reporting on the potential financial impacts of climate change uh, on parts of our business in line with the uh, TCFD, so Task Force for um, um, Non-Financial Reporting, or Financial Disclosures, sorry. So we're quantifying, we started quantifying our climate-related risks and opportunities and and have included this in our report. Um, But... As you touched on, is a really big company, but about 80% of our business is fiber-based. So responsible sourcing is also one of our one of our most material aspects. Um, we have, have an integrated business model. And we manage 2.3 million hectares of forestry in Russia and South Africa. 100% of that is FSC certified. And in terms of the wood that we procure from the market, 72% is uh, FSC or PFC certified and the remainder is all moving the controlled wood standard. So we have transparency across our wood supply. Um, and in our report, we tried to take a bit of a deeper dive into the transparency side of things. So we um, we, we showed a, with an infographic in our report that 90% of our wood fiber is sourced locally from the countries where our mills are located, and shared that information in our report, and um, feel feel like that's actually been, been recognized as well. So we, we also included uh, that CDP um, leadership scoring that we have with an A minus score on forests and climate change and an A for water security. So it seems that we are doing the right things and also reporting on the right things. Um, and also just briefly to uh, address the other 20% of our business uh, on the plastic side of things. In our report, we highlighted our new um, eco solutions customer-centric approach um, following that we say use paper where possible and plastic when useful so those would be a few of the things that I would highlight that are in our reports um, but perhaps um, one other one other point that I would touch on is our positioning article as well that we have started so just to just in last year's report and again this year we've added at the very beginning of our report, to give it the prominence we think it needs to have what we call a positioning article on a key topic or topics that are affecting both our business but society at large. Uh, last year, we took a deep dive on, plast- on the issue of plastic waste and uh, the deforestation in terms of the fiber supply chain. This year, we took a um, holistic view on this, again, looking specifically at the um, how interrelated how we can use forests to tackle the climate crisis, and how interlinked these topics are when it comes to climate change, freshwater ecosystems, and sustainable forest management.
0: Okay, that was um, extensive. It's uh, I think it's testament testament to the report that you're able to um, to articulate that in, in in such a succinct way. And, and I think um, the SDGs that you mentioned probably do help. And I, I do want to touch on that. We've um, We've seen a lot of questions around how businesses should be incorporating and and reporting against the SDGs. Um, I'm on I'm on the page now where you kind of outline SDG six, seven, eight, um, nine, twelve, uh, thirteen, fifteen. So a, a lot of key ones there. Um, how how can you ensure that you're actually contributing to them and and we you know we've seen some cases where businesses perhaps just badge their. Their kind of incremental targets that aren't, you know, aligned to science, for example, um, unlike Mondi's. They, they just kind of badge them up, and because they, you, because you can see SDG six clean water logo there, you think, oh, they must be helping, when really it's it's not really at the scale provided. How 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 did Mondi go around showing that 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 they were contributing and not just badging against the goals? That's
3: what I touched on before, um, uh, that we've really also, our approach to this has evolved. So rather than just doing a simple mapping exercise of what kind of content, what are the activities that are happening that could somehow be be linked to the SDGs, we've really tried to take a, a very different view to this and say, where can we have the greatest impact? And it could be positive or negative potential impacts. And what are we doing to address those, Um, and and, and where can we make the biggest difference in the SDGs? So for the example you touched on with SDG 6 on clean water and sanitation, Um, we had discussed it already in 2018. Um, At the time, we didn't take it into those uh, SDGs that we considered the most relevant across the whole group. We thought it was, at the time, there was still a discussion saying that was perhaps more of of a regional focus on South Africa. Um, But those conversations continued, and in in 2019, we decided to take SDG 6 in as one of our core SDGs, because water scarcity is something that goes beyond a specific region. It's not just about South Africa and the the water water scarcity that they have there, but it's about the impacts of our pulp and paper mills in all of the countries that we operate, in terms of water quality and, and also water quantity. Um, so that's, that's that's our approach to this and we look also specifically at the targets behind the sdgs as well so not just the high level mm. um you know what is sdg 13 was on climate change or sd 16 uh sdg 15 on life on land um, but really what are the specific targets and also include those in each of our what we call the landing pages for each of the 10 different action areas
0: that we have okay good to know and, and you mentioned t50 as, as, as well um which you know I'm not, I'm not a sustainability expert, so I'm not a finance expert, but it seems an incredibly useful um, list of recommendations in terms of businesses and sustainability professionals being able to align uh, sustainable business with more traditional filings. Uh, from anecdotal conversations I've had with people, it sounds like it's quite a, a resource extensive uh, task in terms of time. How, how, how have you found um, the, the kind of original step into the TCFD uh, tasks?
3: Uh, well, we've been working with the TCFD Preparers Forum um, for quite some time, um, and it is uh, an extensive task, um, going through the exercise uh, to identify the climate-related risks and opportunities and then also to calculate what those potential impacts could be. Um, we really do feel that we're still at the beginning of our journey here, though, Um which is why we're not putting a, a great emphasis on the, on the actual numbers themselves, but the exercise itself is, is really valuable. Um, and I think our perspective also is that there is no separate. Um, there's no separate sustainability strategy in the company, and there's also no separate risk. Sort of say uh, approach here. So sustainability is at the heart of everything we do, from a from a strategy point of view, um, and also when we look at our, at our risks and opportunities, it is integrated in there. But this past year, we did make climate change as a as a distinct item within our risk uh, matrix. Um, looking at it even more
0: specifically. Okay, um, very good to know, and yeah, i would certainly like to keep in touch with you around the T 50 journey. Um, we yeah we haven't seen cases are too many businesses um that are too far along on the journey so i I definitely think that will crop up in, in popularity um throughout the years and i wanted to touch just on um kind of how how monday chose to publish its report we there's, there's plenty of ways to do it some people are switching to integrated reportings or just publishing alongside annual filings which is one of the t fifty um, aspects of it and, and obviously many still do that and then put the standalone report out what, what's monday's approach to kind of uh, integrating sustainability within the more traditional filings of, of business yeah, we um, take the approach where we have,
3: we have a suite of our, our reporting suite that we publish. So we publish a standalone um, SD report every year, um, and in addition to that, we have an integrated report, and, and both of those are published simultaneously, um, uh, and, and they're designed, obviously, to target to different audience needs. So we always are looking to keep the audience in mind, and how can we best reach those audiences and, and tell the right stories. Um, that we have. So with an SD report, I think this year we have a, it's about 142 pages, although I have to be honest about, you know, the last third of that is definitely uh, the tables and things that are the technical requirements of reporting, the GRI index and so on. Um, but nonetheless, you need the space to be able to tell a bit more of the narrative about what you're doing and why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and we wouldn't have that sufficient space if it was only the content that we integrate into evolve into the
0: annual report um, but of course having them very closely interlinked um, makes both reports stronger. Now, that's a really good point actually that was going to be my next question what is the, the value to it but I think the, the space aspect of it seems to be uh, the, the key part and um, looking, looking more broadly then across just reporting spectrum and not, not just a, a Monday's own report how, how do you feel as, as you know um, as, as a company that's kind of excelled in this area how do you feel businesses can use the the standalone sustainability report, the integrated report, however they're approaching it? How how can they use it to actually maximise engagement with the sustainability agenda and not, you know, not just make sure that it's uh, you know the PDF there or it sits on the site and no one's actually going to it? What kind of comms um, work are am only doing, and what should businesses be doing? Yeah, I, I mean, I touched on it before. I think the number one
3: uh, rule here is to keep your audience in mind. It's true for pretty much anything you're doing um, in business life or any, any sort of reports that you're producing or presentations or anything else. Um, keeping them in mind and, and also what they would be interested in hearing rather than what you want to tell. <laughs> um, so with the, with the SD report, we certainly walk a fine line in terms of having to meet those technical reporting requirements um, and at the same time, keeping the narrative and the stories in there that people will remember to bring that content to life. So in terms of... of, of recommendations here. Otherwise, obviously, I think it's very important to make your report as engaging and compelling as possible. Part of that is is about using also, if as as possible, um, non-technical language uh, that's easily understood, um, and also to be as transparent as possible. Um, I think that's crucial overall for sustainability reporting. So we also talk about challenges and the things that did not go so well uh, in the past year Um, to illustrate this I can just tell you that we used to have for many years we had what we called um, at a a glance the SD highlights page Um, and last year we changed the headline here from SD highlights to SD headlines um simply because we did have to share information and we wanted to share information uh about a few things that had not gone according to plan when it came to some of our environmental parameters and it didn't feel that talking about only about highlights as in positive um really was the right way to go and that's been very well received um but in terms of um how to make that content live longer? I think it's important to have a plan on, on your, how to communicate and leverage the content throughout the year. Um, so this is also something that we have have battled with and continue to work and, and refine and try out new new, new approaches. Um, we have a social media plan where we make different posts, uh, take pulling out different parts of the content out of the report. Also in, in relation to topics. That are, that are current uh, and ongoing. Um, we use different platforms, both internally and externally. So internally, we have a very strong, what we call Planet One D. So that's our intranet solution, but also TV screens uh, in the different operations and in the headquarter, even video clips to get the conference across. Um, and then thinking about our audience within terms of the, the, the sales and marketing, uh, when they're meeting customers, we've created a, a slide deck to share the, the most important uh, content and, and break it down into a simple language as well that can be shared then with customers and and looking at developing uh, sort of a toolbox. Uh, so other tools that can be used uh, if you think about the fact that Some people don't want to sit down with a customer and have to open a laptop and show a PowerPoint presentation. Um, They've known the customer for many years, and it's a different kind of relationship. So we've created now a a deck of cards with some of those key things and key messages that we want to get across that you can use to convey some of those messages in a more informal, face-to-face kind of manner. Um, So it's it's doing those kinds of things um, uh, to get the messages across as long as you can, because at the end of the day, it's an immense amount of work that goes into it, um, and just publishing it on the day and then letting it sit there would really be a, a waste of, of the resources. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
3: Internally, it, we, it's known as it's the Bible. So, anything that's in that SD report can, can be used uh, in internal external communication, and it's,
0: it's just a great source of information. Wow! No no stone left unturned there. That was um, that was extremely impressive. All, all audiences accounted for and, and everything um susan that that's great so thank you so much for uh taking time out of um it's a pretty busy day i imagine you know you're probably well ahead on the work for the next iteration of the board already so i won't keep you uh for any longer but it's been a pleasure <laughs> speaking to you thank you thank you very much matt thanks for the invitation so a big thank you to susan darian and julie for their insight for this special engage episode of the sustainable business covered podcast that's just about it for this week's episode, and we're hoping to be back towards the end of May, where we're focusing on yet another week of action. This time it's all about Net Zero Live, a now virtual free day event that runs from the 18th to the 21st of May. I'll be bringing you an extended episode of the Net Zero Business Podcast with insight from not one, not two, but three businesses that are all very much focused on the Net Zero transformation. Just a reminder then that you can subscribe to these podcasts via Spotify or iTunes and we're also hosting on SoundCloud. Each of our episodes is also accompanied by an article on the ED website as well. So if you're looking for more information on the guests and their initiatives, do head over to ed.net to check them out. But thank you all for tuning in. And in the meantime, stay safe, stay optimistic and speak soon. Goodbye.